Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. Father, we come to you today thankful for the chance to raise our voices and sing together, thankful to hear uh, people singing over us as well. Um, As we take some time now to search out your word, we, we trust that you have something here for us. And so as we continue to see this, this story un- unfold, as we continue to see the, the life and, and work that you called Jonah to, his response and the response of others around him, we pray that you would help us. I pray today in particular that you would stir our hearts to, to be responsive to your word. And we have the promise that your word never returns void, and so I pray today that as it is read that is, is, it expo- is it expounded and as the gospel is proclaimed, that you would refresh our hearts and reset our, our focus and our eyes. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in the book of Jonah. We're in chapter 3 today. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up with me to Jonah chapter 3. It will also be on the screens for you. If you don't own a Bible and would like a, a physical paper Bible, there are some on the book table in the back. Um, And it's our gift to you. You can take it with you today. And today, as we continue our story in Jonah, we come to chapter 3. And and so already we've had, I think, the most well-known parts of the book of Jonah, that he was told to go to Nineveh. He didn't want to go. And so he tried to run away and got on a boat and got thrown overboard and got swallowed by a fish and spit out back on land. And so now that the story continues with the back half of the book that is often ignored. Um, And there's reasons. is because it doesn't fit neatly into a good a good perspective, a positive perspective on our running prophet. But we see today in the response to the Ninevites, the, the question that I want to really raise for us to consider as we begin today is, what are you doing or what do you do? What are the practices in your life that you have to seek God? You know, we work really hard at all kinds of health. We work hard at physical health um, and the older you get, the harder work that becomes. We work hard at mental health, and that's good. That it, that's become increasingly an awareness that people have that, that mental health is, is, it needs to be handled well as well. It's not just physical. We work hard at relational health. So there's times in life where we have to learn how to set boundaries with certain people or how to invest into friendships. We get hurt and we have to forgive. And, so, and if you're with your roommates or if you're married or have kids, like it's always a practice in trying to have healthy relationships. We work on emotional health, being able to process what we feel and to be able to understand it and get to the root of it and understand that emotions can be like indicators on a dashboard, but they aren't necessarily truth. And so how do we wade our way through our own feelings? And moral health. How do we make good choices? They're going to set us up well in our life. And so all of those come more naturally to us, but what about spiritual health? I mean, even if you're not a Christian and you're here today, I want to ask the question of how do you spend time cultivating and tending to your own soul? And what do you do to take time to tend to your own soul, or how do we even do that? It's easy for us to think, I think, often when we talk about stories in the Bible, as we interact with stories in the Bible, we can read some of these and think, gosh, Jonah just had God's word come to him. Like, if that happened to me, that'd be so much easier, it'd be so much clearer, I wouldn't be confused, it would be easy to obey, and I would do whatever God told me to do. Maybe, but that's why we have the book of Jonah. And so as we continue in chapter 3, this is what we read. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. 
So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going about a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is our second encounter that we see Jonah have with God's word. You remember the first one, there were three commands in the first one. Get up, go to Nineveh, and call out. As God said that their wickedness had come up before him. And so Jonah, if you remember, which of, the, which of the commands did he obey? Get up. He got up, and then Nineveh was one direction, and he went the opposite direction. And he started a descent down. He went down to Joppa, a, port, a seaport. He went down onto a ship. As the ship set out to sea and a storm kicked up, he went down below deck and fell asleep. And then he ended up getting tossed overboard at his own request. And he got, went down below the waves and down to the, to the, underneath the waves and down to the roots of the mountains, down to where the land's bars closed in on him forever, he said in his prayer. And, and so now he was, he was spewed out by the fish, and, and so now he gets a second chance. So God comes to him again and says, all right, Jonah, and it's the same three commands. Jonah, arise, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. But you see here, it specifies, God says to him, call out against it the message I tell you. And so what did Jonah do? Well... It says that Jonah arose, he got up, and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. And now there's a narrative break. We need to pay attention to the ways that these stories are written, because there's a pause now. It says that he got up and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord, so he's got two of the three commands now, but it goes on to tell us, now let's talk about Nineveh. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. It was a, a three days journey. Now, that's a little bit hard to, uh, there's, a, there's an idiom here that nobody actually knows what it means. Um, it, this great city of Nineveh uh, is, is, let's talk about that for a minute and talk about why it's so great. The kingdom of Assyria began rising to power in about 1000 BC, a little over 200 years before the time of Jonah. And so for a little bit of perspective, because in world history we hear that and we think, oh, only 200 years, maybe that's new on the scene. Think about how old our country is. Like 200 years ago seems like a long time ago. And, and when we get close to 250 years, now we're getting into times that we read about, but the idea of, of that being a short time just isn't true here. So for Jonah, this was an established kingdom, and Nineveh was at times the royal city, the capital city. Now, the city covered 1,900 acres, so it had a circumference. You could walk around it. It was a seven-mile circumference. That is not big by modern terms. But in the ancient Near East, that is a significant city. And the city was laid out intentionally. It was a planned city, and so there were public squares, and there were parks, and there was a zoo. And it was estimated that the palace was over 70 feet tall, which is seven stories. And we learn in the, at the end of the book, at the end of chapter 4, that it included 120,000 residents, and that may have included the greater metropolitan area, as we might say. And so Jonah, it, t- it stops to tell us about this city, and it says it's an exceedingly great city, it's a, and, and the, the Hebrew idiom here is something along the lines of, it's a three days walk kind of town. 
because we know it doesn't take three days to walk around it even at seven miles. But, but, the, but what's important to us is Jonah began to go into the city about a third of the way. And so that's, that's the relation. We see the comparison here. And as he goes into the city, Jonah then cries out. And look at verse 4 at what he called out. He has an eight-word sermon. Yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. The question as we read this is, is this the message that God told Jonah to say? We know he got up and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord, but now he has an eight-word sermon. And just to note, there is no identification of which God this is. Remember with the pagan sailors in chapter 1, Jonah introduced them to God's covenant name. He said, I am a Hebrew and I serve the Lord, Yahweh, the God of, of the Hebrews, and who, the maker of heaven, and the, or the, the God of heaven, the maker of sea and dry land. And so it says that then the sailors, after they, they throw Jonah overboard, they stopped and worshipped and offered a sacrifice and made vows. And, and as they did so, they worshipped the Lord the God of heaven, using God's covenant name that he had given his, to his people. Here, the Ninevites don't even know which God. It's just 40 days and Nineveh, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. Now, typically when we see God's word come to people, he identifies himself. And so if you think about like in Egypt, with the 10 signs that God gave in Egypt, the 10 plagues, that with those, with each one of them and along the way through them, God told Moses that by these signs, the Egyptians would know his name. And so it was a revelation of God's name and power. But, and, and there were opportunities, for instance, in Egypt for repentance, for Pharaoh to finally say, yes, your people can go. Jonah doesn't give an opportunity for repentance. He doesn't identify what God this is. He just says, 40 days and you are destroyed. So the Ninevites had very little information they just hear the destructions 40 days away, and they drop everything and repent. It starts with the people. Notice it, it didn't even start with the king. Jonah didn't make it to the king, but it starts with the people as it spread through the city that people like, immediately believed God. It's, they believed God, and they called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And when the word reached the king, the king didn't look at it and say, what is going on, and what are you doing? The king heard it, and his response was that he got up from his robe and covered himself with sackcloth, took off his royal robes as he got up from the throne, and then he, he sat down in the ashes and, and issued a proclamation for everyone to repent, for everyone to fast and not have food or drink, not even the animals. I don't know why the animals are included so prominently in Jonah. Like, we get to the end, and the, the book ends with the question but from God. This is the whole question that the book raises, is, is when God ends it by saying, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Like, I don't, I don't understand that. Um, I don't want, I'm not going to get into a discussion or debate about what, whether there are animals in the new heavens and new earth or what animals or if it's pets or, uh, but th this is included here and the king includes that. So if you can imagine the noise of that city, if all of the animals and livestock and herds and flocks were denied food and water, the people are crying out in repentance. It had to just be a, a like a mess of sound of, of animals and people crying out. And it's striking again what we've seen all the way through this book. The wind and the waves obeyed God. The pagan sailors obeyed God. The fish obeyed God, both in swallowing Jonah and in vomiting him up. Now the Ninevites repent and turn in obedience to God, and the king of Nineveh declares a fast with a the theological statement, let everyone call on, out mightily to this God and let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and, may, and, we, and turn from his fierce anger so that we may, might not perish. But Jonah still hasn't shown us full obedience. And so today we're going to look at the Ninevites because the Ninevites show us 
how to respond to, properly, rightly, to God's word. First, they show us that a true encounter, if we really understand God's word, we'll believe. This is how they respond. It's actually in the Hebrew text, the word believe is the first word in that sentence. Um, a little bit Yoda-ish, if you think about the way the grammar works out there. Um, believed the Ninevites did. <laughs> and, and, so this is, and so it's an emphasis on the immediacy of the response of the people. Again, eight-word sermon with no mention of God's name, no mention of repentance, but they turn and believe. And this happens at times where we see God's word have this kind of an impact. So Isaiah chapter 55 tells us, God says through, the, through Isaiah, that just as the rain and the snow fall on the righteous and the wicked, so his word goes out and will never return void. It will never return empty. And so the Ninevites are showing this fruitfulness of repentance and in belief as they hear God's word coming to them, and it's, it's immediate. Um, as I was reading, it's, for some of you, this may have been, you may have had this kind of an experience. And one of my heroes that I've read about and gone and researched a lot is a, a preacher named Charles Spurgeon. And I got to go and check out some of the, like, where he lived and some of the places, key sites of his life several years ago. And I got to go to this tiny little chapel out in Colchester, England. Um, it was a pretty long train ride out from London and went out there and saw this tiny little place. Um, and and, and it had a little blue plaque on it, which is, that's something they do in the UK that I wish we did here. It's kind of cool because every once in a while they'll just be walking and there's a house with a plaque on it. And I don't know, like my favorite one is, on, is near Giant's Causeway in Northern Ireland. There's one for a great potato breeder. Um, <laughs> we just don't celebrate people's work like that. But there was a plaque on there about that Charles Spurgeon, the preacher, converted in this chapel. And the story goes that he was a young man, he didn't want anything to do with the church, and he got caught in a snowstorm, on a, and he was trying to walk to and get to his grandfather's church that Sunday. It was snowing like crazy, so the blizzard was bad enough that the pastor didn't make it to this little chapel, and he stopped in just to warm himself up. And so there was a deacon of the church who, had, who, was, who was not regularly a preacher that stood up, and, and to the, as the account goes, he just kept reading Isaiah 45, 22 over and over and over again. His whole sermon was saying, look unto me, all you ends of the earth, and be ye saved. And he just kept saying that over and over again, and then pointed at Spurgeon in the back. He said, young man in the back with a long face, look unto him, ends of the earth, and be ye saved. And he said he was cut to the heart and, and was immediately felt God's presence and knew that he was turning to Christ and giving his life to him. He also said it was the worst sermon he ever heard. <laughs> but it was God's word that reached him. It's not the power of a preacher. It's the power of God's word that comes to us. Like I can talk all I want. I could speak as eloquently as humanly possible. I could have all of the emotion and draw you in with stories and have you laughing and weeping. And I could, I could put on a production of a presentation for you today and there would be nothing I can do in the best effort to change your heart. My prayer every week is that God's word will come to you and that you, your heart will be changed, your heart will be gripped, and you will be given the opportunity and the gift of faith and belief that God has spoken to you. And for some of you, belief in Jesus came like that. You had very little information, very little time, but you knew that God gripped your heart in a moment, and you can't imagine anything other than belief. For others of you, that's not been your story. You've, it's come harder, and you've, you've been more of a skeptic, and you, God, you just want God to, to prove himself to you, and it's been a wrestling through your life. And that, neither one is right or wrong here, but, but there are different pathways. But no matter what, what we, as we get back to the question, the question we started with today, we'll continue with, is, is the question of what are you doing to pursue your own spiritual health? And I would say to you that that a starting place is to read God's word, to actually get into the Bible. If you're not a Christian and you're skeptical of the Bible, then I want to encourage you, challenge you, to at least read the source material and don't just rely on impressions that you have about it. And if you're a Christian, reading scripture, we have the opportunity that is, is still 
a fairly unique modern phenomenon when you look at the history of the world and Christianity in the world that we have the, we have the ability to have personal copies of Scripture in our hands. More than that, we have the opportunity to pull up any translation that's ever been done in all of human history on our phones in an instant. You have the ability to go to websites right now and even without knowing Greek or Hebrew, check me on whether or not the word believed was the first word in the Hebrew text. Like we have the access to, and resources to information that is amazing, and as we encounter the Bible, we, I really do believe that this is God's word to us, and so if we read scripture and ask God to open our eyes to truth, then, then we, we will encounter his presence, and, and God can change our hearts and draw us to belief. We, we need to turn somewhere else for our own spiritual health. We, we can only learn so much about ourselves looking inward. There has to be something bigger. And I love here the God's grace that is poured out. That I, it, like if you look at verse 10 of chapter 3, the way that it repeats this, when God saw what they did, so when God saw the Ninevites repenting, how they had turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he said he would do them. And he did not do it. Like this is, it's making it clear here, God's grace came to Nineveh even through a guy that didn't want to be there who had a questionable sermon of whether or not it was even God's word and still God was able to use that in the lives of the Ninevites to save them and, and to save them from the disaster that was coming. This is important because so often there's this hard distinction being made between the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament, as if God of the Old Testament is angry and mean and judgmental, and then Jesus came and undid all of that for us. And when you read the Old Testament, you see over and over and over again that God is a God of grace and mercy. We learned about his character already through this book, that he's a God who speaks that his word is clear and authoritative, that his presence is inescapable, that God's knowledge is infinite, and he is sovereign, and he is concerned with all people. So do you believe that to be true? If not, be honest, what would it take for you to believe? What is the barrier to belief today? Would you even believe it if God took on flesh as a human being? and a man was raised from the dead. And so if we encounter God's word, it'll lead to belief. The second action that it'll bring is repentance, that we'll repent. That's the necessary outflow of belief in God and his character exposed through his word is repentance. The more that we see who God is, the more we'll realize who we really are. And this is a, a theme throughout scripture and throughout what, what it means to be a Christian. Now, the Ninevites here put on sackcloth and ashes, even the king. And so the whole city is crying out in repentance. Can you imagine that in D.C.? Can you imagine people like, okay, somebody said no. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, like, it, it, just imagine this. Imagine the people that our city is known for admitting a mistake and genuinely apologizing and repenting. Can you imagine people in, in the streets in sackcloth and ashes crying out to God for his mercy? Like we, we tend to look back again at biblical times and, and think it's like quaint and cute. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria who had destroyed the northern kingdom of God's people, had destroyed Israel and sent 10 of the tribes into exile. And so this is a, a big city. Now, but they turn in repentance because of God's word. Now, when, when Christians talk about hearing from God, I, when I, in my experience, it rarely leads to immediate repentance. So when you hear somebody saying like, well, I've been praying and asking God and, and I really think that God told me to do this, often it's a direction in life, it's something that they want to do maybe, but, but often, how often is it that somebody says, you know what, I've been praying and talking to God about this and I need to repent, I'm wrong and I need to lay this thing down and turn a different direction. I think there's a question that we need to wrestle with of, do you believe that Christians even need to repent? Because there are some who would say, no, you repent when you turn to Jesus. It's turning away from sin and turning to him. And once you have made that turn, then you are, you are full in Christ, you are saved, and you don't have to worry about anything anymore. But then you read Romans chapter 7, one of the most honest chapters in the whole Bible, where Paul, the apostle Paul, talks about 
gosh, I end up doing the things I don't want to do, the things I want to do, I don't do. I know what God's word and God's law are, but my, my flesh fights against that. I've got this war happening within me. What a wretched man I am. He knows the need for repentance, but also has the assurance that, that if anyone is in Christ, there is no condemnation. And so repentance is a part of what it means to be a Christian. It should never be hard for somebody who claims Christ to admit that they have been wrong. It should never be hard for someone who claims Christ to, to be able to hear that they have hurt someone and, and feel the sorrow of that and, and apologize for the things they have done that have caused hurt. Luther, when, his, when he nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, sparking the Protestant Reformation, said his first one was, when the, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That doesn't sound very easy, and it's not. And there's a diagram that I, I want to use today and put up today that we used a lot at the beginning in Redemption Hill, but I, I think it's been a long time, and so most of you probably haven't seen this. I did preach Jonah in Redemption Hill's history. It was in the September of 2012, um, and in this room right now, that includes... Okay, Jess, you were here in September that year? Jess and Jordan and Alyssa. <laughs> Um, so I know for most of you, this is a fresh sermon series. Um, but there's, and maybe Carly, all right, that's right, the first round. All right, so there, there's a chart that is really helpful. It was initially developed by Paul Miller, who wrote A Praying Life and A Love Walks Among Us. It was popularized by his dad, Jack Miller, a Presbyterian pastor. Um, but it's, it's a chart that I think is incredibly helpful. Because often when Christians do look at, and some of you have been conditioned to think about, about, about salvation and conversion as essentially fire insurance. Say a prayer, you're in, don't worry about the rest. But the Christian life is, if, you, if we have a point where belief comes, then the rest of the Christian life, what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to take up our cross daily to follow him and lose our life to find life, is that we will have an ever-increasing awareness of God's holiness. And that as we understand God's holiness more and more, that that will necessarily expose our own sinfulness. And so that those two will grow over time. We will understand God's holiness and his majesty and his grandeur. And the closer we get to him, the more that we will be exposed for all that we are. And so when, and, and so when we're told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, it's, it's to do this, to dig ever deeper into the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to, to work to understand God's holiness more clearly and our own sin more desperately. And it's the same way that, and that if you bring something into the light, you see it more clearly. So the closer we get to the light of God, the more clearly we will see the realities in our lives. I talk about this regularly. You've, many of you have heard me talk about this, that, that I am the splinter remover in our family, that somehow these hands can also be incredibly precise. <laughs> and, and so when our kids get splinters, they will come to me, and I don't go to a dark place in order to take that splinter out. You go to the light so that you can see clearly everything that has to be taken care of and removed. It can be painful, but it has to get out, otherwise it will get infected, and then infection will spread. This is what it's like to come into God's holiness more clearly, that the things in us that need to get exposed to be removed will become clearer and clearer. But this is the good news, is that if, as we, if we actually practice that, if we learn God's holiness in our own desperate sinfulness more and more, the cross gets bigger and bigger and bigger as our life goes on. The gospel becomes all the much more sweet. It becomes something that we cling to more desperately, and it'll lead us to begin to comprehend something of of God's love and mercy and grace and compassion, that, that more will be made of Jesus in our own hearts and in the depths of our souls. And so our worship will be purer, our joy will be fuller, our hope will be grounded in God's work that was accomplished in Christ for us. 
And so if we really encounter God's word and we really ask God to work in us and in, through his word, the result is not going to be greater selfishness or self-fulfillment. The result will be belief and repentance, belief that God is who he claims to be and Christ is who he claims to be and, and repentance because we will see ourselves more clearly. And that will lead us to the third action, to cry out. And I love this, the king got up, and he's already in Nineveh, so he didn't need that command from God, but then he cried out, he issued a proclamation to the Ninevites, by decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, but let them, let them not feed or drink water, but let the man and beast be covered in sackcloth, let, all, let them all call out mightily to God." Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands, and who knows, God might turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. If we really encounter God's word, if we really understand who God is and get a clear perspective on ourselves, it's going to lead us to cry out to him and to cry out about him. Now, it's easy it's easier to have a cognitive understanding of who God is, but not be at a point that you cry out to him regularly. Because when I hear this, like calling out, issuing this decree that, that everyone, man and beast, is called to call out mightily to God, that, that earlier on the soldiers got Jonah up. Remember, they, they, it had to be like a nightmarish scenario that Jonah was asleep and the captain of the boat came and said, hey, sleeper, get up, call out to your God. It's two of the three commands. And Jonah, I have to imagine, was like, ah, who are you? Perhaps that God will give us a, a thought that we may not perish. The soldiers were crying out to their gods, but then they turned and called out to the Lord. Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. And so we see the sailors calling out to God. We see the Ninevites calling out to God and, and the command from the king of Nineveh that everyone, man and beast, call out mightily to God. What keeps us from calling out mightily to God? What makes prayer so hard and so difficult to do consistently? Well, think about times when we do feel desperate for God. If you're not a Christian, think about times that, that you ask these questions and ask life's big questions a little bit more insistently when you feel a sense of desperation. Usually it comes through suffering. That, as C.S. Lewis has said, that, that God whispers through success, but suffering is his megaphone to the world. And so when we are in suffering, when things are going badly, when things are hard, when, we're, when, we're, when things aren't going the way we think they ought to and we're in the midst of whether it's conflict or, or illness or relational breaks or, um, or it could be financial, they get caught up and in, in just getting run over financially, the, any way that we suffer, those tend to be the points that we say, God, I need your help. Like... My kids are in finals week. I remember going into finals weeks and not having done a thing and going into the test saying, God, I need you to give me an A on this test. And at some point I was corrected and, said, and somebody said, well, why don't you just pray that God like, brings to mind all the things you study? And I said, because that would not work. <laughs> we need a miracle. When we're in suffering, when we don't feel like we have any options left, that's when we tend to cry out to God. The Ninevites were fine. They were comfortable until Jonah showed up. And all of a sudden, with the prospect of their own destruction, they ch everything changed and they, they believed and repented and started calling out. And so I think for us, the things that get in the way of a holy desperation for spiritual things and for life through God and to turn to his word and to call out in prayer are that we get too comfortable we get convince ourselves that we don't need God to show up because things are going fine. We get too self-sufficient. Those of us with big shoulders, metaphorically, <laughs> tend to think that we can just push our way through life and difficulty. 
We turn to cognitive understanding and try to theologize more or read more or assess more systems of religious thought, and, but intellect alone is cold. A lack of belief will equal a lack of repentance, which will equal a lack of desperation to call out to God. And so let's remember the, the gospel cross chart that I just had up. Because it's hard, some of us don't feel like this chart shows that we don't feel like the cross is growing in our lives. We don't feel like we have a clearer and better understanding of God that is increasing as life goes on. And, and some of you, I've heard this, especially through the last three years that have been hard. We have been through a global trauma. And through that, I think at the beginning, there were points of desperation, but as time went on and things went by, and now we're trying to still grapple with some of the realities of the impact of the last three years, um, or last seven years, that, that we, it, this, it, we get, it hit a point where I hear from you that, that so many feel like stale or dry, faith is stagnant, you're just, something's not connecting. There's two potential reasons that we that we don't draw closer to God. It's performing and pretending. When we pretend, we minimize sin by making ourselves out to be something that we're not. Every one of us does this. We do it to ourselves, let alone outwardly to other people, trying to convince ourselves that, that we're better off than we are, but that minimizes the cross. Or we perform, minimizing God's holiness to something we can reach. And so we think, you know what? I can get there. And that's when, we, when hard times happen, and, and I do this too, times when I'm like, God, you know, well, why are you letting this happen to me? I have done this for you, I've done this for you, I've been, I've been faithful in this way, I've been investing in this person, why are you letting this happen? Well, what I'm doing is I have minimized God's holiness and believed that I'm attaining a level where I deserve things from him. And I'm minimizing my own brokenness and pretending that I'm something greater than I am. Both of those are an inadequate view of God's holiness and our identity. So why don't we cry out? Well, often it's because we're either pretending or performing. And so we need to rekindle our faith. The way that you grow spiritually, the way that you get healthier spiritually is to turn to God's word within God's community and, and ask God to send his spirit to open your eyes to his holiness and to what you need, and that will lead us to belief and repentance and to cry out to him. And that's when, as we remember, that, that when we have those factors, the cross just grows and grows as we understand the gospel more fully. And if we cry out to God, fourth, we receive mercy. And this is the last action that we have today. So responding to God's word, if, if God's word really comes to us, if we encounter God through his word, we will believe, repent, cry out, and receive mercy. Now, you notice this one's passive. <laughs> this isn't something that we can actually do. But it's something that we see in God's character that we can trust he will do. The people of Nineveh repent, and God relents of the disaster. He, they, he responds to their repentance and relents from the destruction, and so this is where we need to be reminded, like, remember, this is the Old Testament, and still, when people heard God's word, believed him, repented, and cried out to him, they received his mercy. Now we have a fuller picture of this same God because what we're told when we reach the New Testament, in John, we, we read in chapter 1 that, that the Word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. We read that the, that Word took on flesh and dwelt among us, and through Him we get to see the one that no one can see, the one and only, and full of grace and truth. And so in Christ, we have been offered a clearer picture of God's plan for mercy for us. We've been shown through Christ's death in our place for our sin and through his resurrection that we can be freed from our bondage to rebellion and sin and be reunited with God as our Father. When, when, when we deserve his wrath, he gives us his love. When we deserve destruction, he gives us his mercy. 
And so when we encounter God's word, it's, it's, it, this is the same thing that we see through Christ is, is turn and believe, repent. That means turn away from your sin and turn toward Christ and embrace a new path in your life. Cry out to God and you have the promise that you will be saved. This isn't a hope it works kind of a thing. Here's one of the things I love in Jonah's proclamation is it says, uh, the ESV here is, I think, overthrown. Yet, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Some translations there capture that as overturned. I think the, the, the connotation of the language in the Hebrew is, is like a leaf or a sheet of paper that, that you will be turned over. And so that's interpreted as destruction. But I think what we see in Nineveh actually is that the whole city was overturned just not like Jonah wanted. And we'll see next week. I don't want to blow the surprise too much, but again, it's been here for several thousand years. So, um, <laughs> But next week we see this, that Jonah accuses God of his own character. I knew you would do this. This is what I said when I was in my own country. That's why I went to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. So, Lord, now take my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. And we're going to get into Jonah's own psychoses next week. But even Jonah knows who God is. And Nineveh was completely overturned and received God's mercy. Now, this is where we need the reminder, though, that we can't earn God's mercy. Notice it, that the, the four actions we have today are not believe, repent, cry out, and go run after that mercy as hard as you can. It is no, God's word comes to us. We trust that God's word is true. We respond in repentance and crying out to God, and then he is the one we trust for his mercy to come. And, and some of you are on a hamster wheel of trying to earn your way into the, into the health of your own soul and you're running, and it's exhausting. It isn't restful for you to come in to try to pursue God's presence. It's, it's tiring. Maybe, it's, maybe you're pursuing other things. You're looking into other systems of thought and faith and seeing, can I combine different pieces and pick a piece from, from over here in this religious background or this culture? Can I take a piece from this? Can we go a little bit of Hinduism and Buddhism and then combine and show and connect those to Jesus? And we can take all these pieces and create my own system here. And I'm telling you now, you will be exhausted because we can get addicted to religion and religious expression and work so hard to find our way to God, to God, work so hard to find our own holiness, and it typically will come out then in our self-righteous attitudes toward others, but, but we will never attain what we're looking to attain. You will never work yourself into rest. Christians, Yes, read your Bible. Yes, pray. Don't think that a checklist that you are pursuing and running after is the answer. God wants your heart. Read God's word. Encounter it. Pray to God and call out to him. Believe and repent, but then rest. Because you'll receive God's mercy. We can come like the Ninevites and say, who knows? God might turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that I don't perish. But we don't have the question of who knows because we know what God has shown us in Christ. We don't need additional hoops to jump through for ourselves or for anybody else. We receive God's mercy. But then the way that we know that we've believed and repented and cried out and received mercy is that it will show up in our lives because obedience is the fruit of repentance. Now, you can't obey your way to God, but if God changes your heart, it will show up in obedience. The failure on Jonah's part is partial obedience, which, gosh, can I think of most of my life that way. Like I just said, when suffering comes, do you ever have that tendency where you're like, God, I've done this and I've done this, I've obeyed you here? Like, what the heck? Well, sure, but... but have we actually given ourselves, our hearts, and entrusted them fully to God? 
If you actually followed what Jesus said and, and said, you know what, I want to lose myself in order to find, my, find life in him. I mean, partial obedience is not obedience at all. Like, if later on tonight I get home from the evening service and dinner is ready and I say to one of my kids, like, hey, can you go upstairs and tell your sister that dinner's ready? You know, get up, go upstairs, call out the message I'm giving you. And if one of my kids, if Simon goes up and he goes, okay, and he gets up and he goes upstairs and says, hey, you're a jerk. No, that's not, Simon, that's not the message I gave you. That's, that's starting a fight. Like, that's not obedience. With the first instance, like, or if he gets up and goes to the bottom of the stairs and goes, hey, dinner's ready. Then I can, no, I can do that. Get up, go upstairs, call out the message I've given you. We know that practically. Why is it that we get that confused when it comes to what God has given us? And again, through this whole story, we have in chapter one, Jonah versus the wind, waves, sailors, Ninevites, and the fish. Jonah has partial obedience. The Ninevites obey beyond their understanding. They, they didn't even know God's name before the storm began. Now we have Jonah versus the king, that Jonah's concerned about his status. Jonah is supposed to be, but he's supposed to be in, in part of God's people who were called to be a kingdom of priests. And in the meantime, this king of Nineveh gave up his status for the sake of repentance. He removed his robe, he left his throne, he put on sackcloth and sat in the ashes, and then he commanded the rest of the city to repentance and worship and made statements of God's character. And so we need to do some self-assessment. What is it that we do to pursue spiritual health? Are we more like Jonah? Minimizing our faults, pretending to be something we're not, or, or minimizing God's holiness and, and trying to perform up to what we think is needed? I mean, why obey? Why try to be holy? Why try to pursue Jesus more fully? Well, it's not to earn holiness or a relationship with God. We live in repentance and obedience because through our obedience, we will experience freedom from sin and the maximum amount of joy in our lives now and forever. Like, we, we have this idea that is the same as what was, what was lied about in the garden with the very first pair, Adam and Eve, as the serpent came to them and asked, did God really say this? Do you think he's holding out on you? Do you, you know, if you actually eat this fruit, you'll become like God. And still today, we question, are God's restrictions on me? Are the ways that God's calling me to obey? Like, but I want to go and do what's more fun. Isn't God trying to hold me back from the fullness of this life? And what is he keeping from me? And I don't know if I can trust his word on this. And sin is little more than our attempt to fill the voids in our own hearts and souls that can only be filled by God, and we fill it with things that are inferior to him. Not realizing that, that the fun of the moment will pass and leave you empty and ashamed and searching. Obedience is the decision to seek God, to find our joy in the only one who satisfies the longing of our hearts, God himself. And the promise is, we'll receive mercy. And so again, we, we end where we began. What are you doing to seek spiritual health in your life? Why is it that you're here today? We work really hard at all kinds of other areas of health. We have all kinds of measures that we have for making sure we're physically healthy and, and mentally healthy and relationally and emotionally and morally healthy. What, what about your spiritual health? What about your soul? How much time do you spend tending and caring for your own soul, and, and how do we even do that? And again, I think we often think, I often think in situations like, God, if you would just tell me directly... It would be so much easier for me, and I would just obey. But that's, again, why we have the book of Jonah. We've been given God's word. He has spoken to us. We read in Hebrews that it's living and active, and it, it can cut between joint and marrow, that it, it penetrates our hearts, exposing the desires of our hearts. 
God's word, it works itself out, and he will continue to speak through it today. And so if you have heard God's word today and understand the ultimate revelation of his word is through Christ, then, then a response to the encounter with the true God and his word is to believe, to repent, to cry out, and to receive mercy. And so that's what I want to invite every one of us to today. If you're not a Christian, what is it that's keeping you from belief and resting in Christ? And if you are a Christian, don't ever get to a point where you buy into a thought that you've moved past belief and repentance. Don't ever reach a point where you lose a sense of desperation that you need to cry out to God and that you need his mercy on you. We talked a couple of weeks ago about Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, that you have one that stood in pride and said, that God, thank you for not making me like this guy. But the other dropped to his knees and beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. What did Jesus say? He was the man who went home justified that day. And so this is what it means to turn to Christ. It's, a, it's an entire lifetime of belief repentance, crying out, and receiving God's mercy as we receive his word for us. Let's pray. Well, Father, I'm praying now for you to do something that only you can do. And that is to wake up our hearts, to peel off the calluses that we've built up so that we can be sensitive to your presence and your spirit, to open up our ears so that we can hear your voice and your word, to open up the eyes of our hearts so that we would be able to see and understand who you are and what you've done for us and so that we would be able to see and understand the reality of who we are and our desperate need for your help. And so, Father, I pray that as we've listened to your word today, as we've read it and encountered it through the service and now in Jonah 3, that, that you would move in all of our hearts. that you would give us the ability and the freedom to respond more like the Ninevites than like Jonah. To throw ourselves down on your mercy, knowing that it has been given to us in Christ. So we pray today that, that you would do this work, but we pray that it wouldn't just be today. We want to be a people who are marked by belief and repentance and a trust in your word and people marked by those who, as those who have received your mercy and extend your mercy and grace and love into a world that needs it desperately. I pray for, for, that you would help those of us who are following Jesus and help us in this church to hear your call to us that, that we are called to get up, that you've put us in the middle of this great city. And that you've given us a message to call out. Forgive us for the times when, when we've been hesitant on that message or when we've shortened and truncated that message or when we've left pieces out because they, we feel like it's too much of an edge. And, and would you give us the freedom and the confidence to call out what you have called us to, to have a boldness to proclaim the good news of Jesus, to have a willingness to enter into this place and seek the good of this place but to have word and deed not choosing between one or the other and Father as we turn to the Lord's table today we pray that, that you would meet us in this time as well we pray this in Christ's name Amen